Welcome to Music Nerds Unite. This is Scott Floman again with my brother Keith Floman and our buddy Larry Wallman. In this episode, we'll be completing the first round of our greatest rock album tournament covering the years 2000 to 2019. Like usual, we have some cool matchups, so let's get started. The first matchup is the number three overall seed and number one seed in this bracket, David Bowie with Blackstar from 2016 versus the number 35 overall seed and the number eight seed in this bracket, Titus Andronicus with a monitor from 2010. Title track from Blackstar. And again, Blackstar is going up against Titus Andronicus, the monitor. Here's four score and seven.
right away, the contrast between these two albums is pretty jarring. Uh, we're going to start with uh, David Bowie, who, who I think, along with Radiohead, are the only artists who also appeared in our prior album tournament covering from the 60s to the 90s. It's impossible to, to listen to uh, Bowie's last proper studio album without considering the background behind it. Bowie knew that he was dying of cancer, though this was certainly well hidden from the public at the time, and the album was finished and released just two days before his death on his 69th birthday. Unsurprisingly, his death resulted in an upswing in sales and Black Star became his first number one US album ever. Amazingly, given the circumstances, this album, co-produced by Bowie with legendary producer and sometime collaborator Tony Visconti, is fully deserving of its success and the acclaim it has received, as it's the best of the bunch among his several impressive late career comeback albums. Musically, most of these songs are built around skittering percussion, some exemplary saxophone work from Donnie McCaslin, the unsung hero of the album, who also plays flute and woodwinds, and Bowie's croon vocals. While the lyrics can't help but allude to his present situation, albeit often abstractly. If I could complain about the mood-based music, it would be that it too is sometimes a bit too abstract and inaccessible. Though on the whole, the album is wonderfully atmospheric and it contains a handful of truly excellent songs. Plus it smartly includes only seven longest songs that run on for a sensible 41 minutes, which leaves you wanting more rather than less, a wise strategy that's too rarely used these days. This haunting, often beautiful album peaks immediately with the celestial, otherworldly 10-minute title track, which we just played, whose multi-section majesty recalls his prior benchmark, Station to Station, in scope, if not in sound, while the also epic scale Lazarus, the album's most successful single, is a melancholic marvel whose direct lyrics, such as Look Up Here, I'm in Heaven, make a maximum emotional impact, is Lazarus.
Some of these songs are more growers than instant classics, but I also really like Dollar Days, a lovely ballad that may be McCaslin's signature song here. And I Can't Give Everything Away, a more lively sax-slash-beats-driven groover that impressively ends the album. And when I say more lively, I mean comparatively speaking, is even that song is still pretty mellow like most of the album. And of course, Tis a Pity She Was a Whore is definitely in the running for the most memorable song title of Bowie's long career, and it's another good song as well. Simply put, though imperfect, this album, among Bowie's jazziest and least rock-based albums ever, was a great goodbye that transcends the backstory behind it simply by virtue of its sheer quality, as this is the work of a true artist who left us all too soon on his own terms. Bravo for you, Mr. Bowie, and thank you for generously leaving us this one last parting gift. On to Titus Andronicus and the Monitor. This was one of my three personal picks along with Mastodon's Crack the Sky and the new Pornographist Twin Cinema. And it was the only one of those three that won their first matchup. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> so I have a major fondness for this album and I return to it fairly frequently. We spoke about the minor at length in our playing episode, episode 26. We talked about how this is easily the greatest Bruce Springsteen influence album with the Civil War at its backdrop. I love the album for its long epic songs, its overblown ambition, its mix of many different types of unexpected instruments, as well as great guitars and drums, and especially its joyous, life-affirming passion. The music is a nice mix of mellow, boozy barroom ballads and thrilling Celtic-flavored punk, and the album is filled with quotable, shoutable lyrics, like in No Future Part 3, Escape from No Future, which we're going to play now and which could very well be the theme song for Music Nerds Unite. Scott, Scott, we could hear that too. That that wasn't just your inner voice. That was <laughs> Titus. <laughs> it's a joke, bro. <laughs> uh, I'm confused. Look at your face. Priceless. <laughs> <laughs> so 
after the rest of this album, this is one of those albums with, with absolutely monumental opening and closing songs, a more perfect union to start things off, and the absurdly epic and rousing 14-minute finale, The Battle of Hampton Roads, to close the deal. But the album has plenty of other highlights, like the two songs we just played, and the music remains fresh and exciting throughout. This is also one of those fully immersive albums that's greater than the sum of its parts, though you can say that about the Bowie album as well. This is a tough call. It almost feels disrespectful to vote against the Bowie album, given the backstory behind the album, his sad passing, and its enormous stature in music in general. But if I have to pick which album I enjoy more, which one I looked forward to listening to more in this matchup, then the answer is the monitor. I have to stand up for my own picks. So I have the monitor moving on here with all due respect to Mr. Bowie and his awesome final achievement. May he rest in eternal peace. On to you guys. I love the monitor. As a matter of fact, it, before this, before we started this podcast, I probably hadn't listened to it in a very long time, but now, now I probably listened to it like 10 times in the last month and a half or so since we started this, at least. It, and it's definitely going to be much more heavily in my rotation than it was before we started this particular bracket. And I actually, I slightly disagree with you, Scott. I mean, I do think it's, it's got a great, so, you know, greater than the sum of its parts, but I also think there's some bangers that you can just throw on in the middle of a playlist and it's great. And this is, this is one of those bands where you would love to have seen them in like a hundred person club and just watch them go absolutely bananas like th this is this is definitely a a club small venue type of band i'd love to be able to see them um, uh, and, I, and again, I can't wait till they're like the 20-year anniversary of the album when they played in full and kind of the entire we'll, that, uh, we'll definitely have to be there for that the um and and again it, it's a phenomenal album definitely one that i had probably forgotten about literally, literally. i mean i loved it when it came out or whenever you know within the couple of months that i discovered it listened to it, but then, you know, moved on. And it's definitely much more in my heavier rotation now, like, like you said it is for you. And I do look forward to listening to it. Having said that, I have a little bit, and I think you guys both know this story, but I have a, a little bit of a personal story with Blackstar, which makes it a little bit more compelling to me in that I remember reading the review of Blackstar and not knowing that it was coming out, like not, not anticipating a new Bowie album coming out and thinking, I don't know, Bowie, jazz. I'm into that. I, I'm, I'm probably the jazz guy out of the three of us, right? So I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to listen to it. I remember it was a late night. I was downstairs listening to it and really getting into it and really, really listening, not background music, really listening to it and thinking, oh my God, like this, this kind of sounds like a goodbye. Like it sounds like there's so many just the overall sound, some of the lyrics, like it sounds like something's going on. Like, I wonder, like maybe, maybe, maybe Bowie's retiring. Maybe this is it for him. He's just going to sort of fade away after this. And this is it for him. And then literally waking up the next morning with an alert on my phone that David Bowie passed away. And I'm like, I, 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 I can't believe it. I mean, I was thinking something was off or something was wrong. And this was a goodbye album or he's, he's leaving us but I didn't really think he was leaving us. And as Scott alluded to, he, he passed away from liver cancer, I think two or three days after the album was released. 
And it's very interesting if you read some of the reviews in retrospect, there are some reviews that came out after he passed and some that came out before he passed. And in some of them, the ones particularly where they were before he passed away, it's there's, there's a realization that something is going on and that maybe this is his swan song, but not exactly. And then obviously all the ones afterwards are like, oh my God, he left us a gift. This is unbelievable. But for me, it really hits home because I listened to it and it was late at night. It was like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night that I'm listening to this album. I wake up the next morning, like five, six hours later. And literally that was the alert on my phone. And I listened to it, I, I, maybe even a little obsessively over the next couple of weeks. And it, it has, has really stuck with me and really resonates with me. And when, when you listen to it, it's very much Bowie going back to, I'm not sure if everyone knows, but Bowie started out as a sax player and he, he definitely has a lot of jazz in his background and clearly has an affinity for it. And this is, I would say this is a rock album made into jazz, played by jazz musicians. And, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting is you know, Scott, you had mentioned um, how the the unsung hero on on the album is really um, Donnie McCaslin. And when Bowie was putting this album together, he intentionally went to Donnie McCaslin and said, "Bring me your 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 band. Bring me your group. Don't br- I don't want session musicians because he needed them to have the right feel for the album. And and again, this is a to me this is a rock album that was played by jazz musicians, or it's a jazz album that just happens to have a little Bowie rock influence. And, and I think you had mentioned Station to Station, which you definitely get the feel of. It, it warrants multiple listens because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of deeper hidden meaning in the album, depending upon, I think, whether you knew that Bowie knew he was dying and this was it or not. And I think if you went into it not knowing that, you might think, a little differently knowing that this was literally his like I'm he found out he had can't he, he knew he had cancer but he found out that it was terminal and that they were no longer going to treat him while he was making this album and you can feel that in the music and so as much as I love the monitor and I will continue listening to the monitor and if the monitor had gone up against maybe maybe a couple of other albums in this in this tournament it would be going on I'm going to go with black star because First of all, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't do it to the, to the man who gave us so much and then literally gave us this and then died the day after it came or two days after it came out. I can't do it. So yeah, I'm going I mean, you, you, you can't ignore that story, right? It's, it's, it's part of the album. And, and what you said about Black Star, you might as well have been describing Astral Weeps too, right? What you said with the jazz musicians. And, Very much so. So I it's think probably that, why uh, I like this album so much. Yes. Exactly. It, it's a rock album done by jazz musicians. Yes. Very much so. All right. I mean, there are, there, there are so many illusions. Like I, I find it almost, and, and I came to the album recently, recently. I, <laughs> I sort of ignored, I sort of ignored the album. You know, it's sort of my, um, my inclination to sort of lean towards more current artists, um, so I, I really didn't didn't um, jump into Black Star, but listening to the album, it's almost impossible to not get the references because there's you know they hit you they hit you pretty hard and and they're through it's throughout the album right like it's it's all over the place uh, so I could imagine listening to it not knowing and, and being a little bit like 
there's definitely more going on here than than meets the eye. It's, it's it also, also wait, sorry to interrupt you though. It's all that context too, though, right? Like if you listen to the album now, sure. you, you knew he was dying. If you listen to the album before and you weren't really listening to the lyrics, you're sort of listening to the music. I don't know if you would have really picked up on that. And if you're, but if you're really listening, you're like something. No, that's what I'm saying. I, listening to it now, it's almost right. It's almost impossible to to not pick up on it. But yeah. but obviously, you know, context does matter. Yeah, it's like it also in utero, right? Right. You, well, you I not consider that. I definitely feel a Radiohead influence to to Bowie just musically, and including sort of you know the horns and you know some of the jazzy elements. I, I have to imagine there, there's there's some influence there, um, but it also just reinforces. How, I mean, it like the horns go so freaking well with the music. Like, why isn't that more prevalent in rock? Right. Like it just, it just, it, it, it makes it a deeper, um, you know, it just adds to the soundscape and it just it is, a, it, it does enhance sort of the listen relative, you know, when you compare it to other types of, um, you know, contemporary, you know, rock music. Um, bag, I gotta say bagpipes too, definitely warrants, um, more representation in, in, in rock music. I'd also say that, you know, it's funny, you know, this whole bracket could pass for a seventies bracket, right? Just the way the music, you know, album to album, it just, you know, it's like almost a classic rock and it, it sort of, recall. um, it sort of makes sense that. It sort of makes sense that Bowie is is leading, you know, is the number one seed in a in a bracket that could be a seventies bracket. Um, you know, Black Star is a, it is a deep, you know, it's a deep album. It's sort of um, it's diff, it's different. It grabs you sort of lyrically, emotionally. Um, the songs are there. It doesn't, you know, it's not boring. Titus, there's no other album that makes that put, puts a smile on your face sort of the second that you know that you put it on and there's no other album in this bracket that sort of gets you pumped up the way Titus does um, and to be honest you know the albums in the entire you know in this entire tournament probably Abacus from the last round and Titus are the two albums that I probably looked forward to listening to the most throughout sort of um, you know, in, in preparation. Um, and it's a rousing good, good time, right? It's like, um, you know, it brings you back to like, you feel like you're, you know, fighting the Confederates and um, <laughs> while, you know, while on, on horseback, you know, with a beer in one hand, with a beer in one hand and, you know, and your bayonet in the other. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can just imagine the three of us fighting, fighting Johnny Reb on horseback <laughs> with a bayonet and a beer, all shouting out, "I'm a loser!" <laughs> yeah, we're, 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 one of us is playing bagpipes. <laughs> uh, so it is a, it is a great, it's such a great out. It is such a great out. It's such a gem. You know, it's one again. It's one of those gems, right? That should be, if there was, you know, if, if life was just. You know, they'd still be playing to, you know, 
stadium, you know, they'd be playing to stadiums. Um, but <laughs> and sorry to, to knock out your last entry, Scott. <laughs> but you know, this is going to be the end of the road to uh, to Titus because I do think that there's something just a little larger, right, in what in what Bowie brought for this offering. Um, that's just going to be it, it's you know it is a time capsule. It's an, it'll be an enduring um, album. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's sort of a, it, it is sort of a genius leaving his parting, you know, his parting gift in a way that, um, is reflective of, you know, his, his understanding of his lot in life, you know, his place in life. And, um, that's why I think, uh, it's, it's worthy of sort of representing, representing Titus into the next, into the next round. So I'm going to go with Bo here. I have to admit, I'm very surprised. I really thought you were going to go Titus. And I'm not disappointed either because I, I fully expected Black Star to move on. And, and my dissenting vote was almost a, you know, I can't have the monitor get swept, right? Because it's such a great album. But uh, I think what you guys said is is legit about Black Star, what makes it special and, and you know, why it's going to be, you know, it's one of the signature albums already of one of these signature artists in rock. And if we were to do a tournament of greatest final albums, that would certainly be in it. Right. You know, pretty definitely pretty one of the best as well. Definitely one of the best deathbed albums. Of all yeah. Time. One of the best. Seriously, it's, like, it's like an elegy or a requiem. I mean, it's, you know, again, I've said it a couple of times now, like if you didn't know, you would kind of know. But the fact that literally he passed away two days after the album got released, you're like, hmm, all right, well, you clearly was sending us a message. Yeah, yep. Mess- yep. message received. So great yep. album. Goodbye to the monitor. We will definitely miss you, but we will play you Love the monitor. Regular, regularly, regardless from now on, uh, you know, as we have been doing a phenomenal album. Right, that concludes our first matchup of this round. We're going to head up to the second uh, matchup in this round. We have the number 14 overall seed and number four seed in this bracket, Sun Kill Moon with Ghost of the Great Highway from 2003 versus the number 19 overall seed and the number five seed in this bracket, the National with Boxer from 2007.
Academy Ohio from Ghosts of the Great Highway. And again, it's going up against the national with Boxer. And here's the leadoff track, Fake Empire. First, we'll talk about Sun Kill Moon, a reboot of sorts for Mark Kozalek after breaking up the seminal slowcore band Red House Painters. Goes for the Great Highway, the first album under the Sun Kill Moon moniker, is simply a superb achievement that was one of the best albums of 2003. Without getting into a Red House Painters versus Sun Kill Moon debate, I'll note that this is the Mark Kozalek album that I listen to the most and that's nearest and dearest to my heart. Perhaps it's the heavy metal or boxing fan in me. There's one song here is called Glenn Tipton in tribute to the Judas Priest guitarist, while deceased boxers who were all tragically killed at the young age of 23 are paid tribute to in Salvador Sanchez, Dooku Kim, and Pancho Villa. But more likely, it's simply that these mournful, melancholic songs, some of which are spare and acoustic-based, while others are more fully fleshed out, are completely gorgeous and deeply affecting. There are a couple of exceptions with a loud riff-based Lily and Parrots, which is still good, but maybe a bit out of place, and the terrific Neil Young-inspired epic rocker Salvador Sanchez, which we're going to play now.
most of the songs here, aside from C. Paloma, are lighter, more briskly paced instrumental or slow ballads that are sad and beautiful. The brilliant Carry Me Ohio, which you heard in this matchup intro, and the too short of anything 14-minute Dooku Kim or obvious standouts on this front, as their music perfectly fits Kozilek's weary, resigned vocal delivery. But all these songs are standouts to varying degrees, and the whole album is wonderfully cohesive. For example, check out the flawless way that last tide flows into floating. True, Kozilek's not much for variety, but there's something to be said about finding a style you're great at and simply sticking with it. And make no mistake about it, Ghost of the Great Highway is a great album that belongs in the pantheon of classic 2000s rock releases. On to The National and their 2007 album, Boxer. First of all, The National are a consistently excellent band, one of the best bands of the past two decades. And as such, we could have picked several of their other albums as well, like Alligator from 2005 or High Violet from 2010. The National are a transplant to New York City band originally from Ohio, who sprouted from the same fertile early to mid 2000s scene as the Strokes, Interpol, LCD Sound System, and others. Led by singer Matt Berninger, whose striking deep baritone is probably the most distinctive characteristic of the band, and a pair of brothers and twin guitarists, multi instrumentalists Aaron Destner and Bryce Destner and bassist Scott Devendorf and drummer Brian Devendorf, the National have had arguably the most substantial career out of all of them. But unlike the other bands, success came slowly. It wasn't until their stellar third album, Alligator, in 2005 that they achieved significant acclaim and a small measure of commercial success. If anything, Boxer even up the ante on Alligator with consistently excellent songs, a more melancholic, ethereal overall mood, and an improved diversity with pianos, violins, and horns at times being added to their basic five-man rock band setup. The band excels at beautifully atmospheric ballads and less often slow-building rockers. And lyrically, this is music made by adults for adults with evocative lines like, you know I dreamed about you for 29 years before I saw you, memorably painting pictures of relationships in urban cities. Berninger's deep crooned vocals can't help but stand out despite being rather one note. And Brian Devendorf's syncopated drumming is simply outstanding. And though maybe it might take a few listens for it to fully grow on you, given that the band are more subtly rewarding than love at first listen flashy. Ultimately, this is an exceptional, completely cohesive album that rewards repeat plays and attention to the details within the reflective lyrics. Standout songs for me include the excellent opener, Fake Empire, which you just heard in this matchup intro, Mistaken for Strangers, which definitely has an Interpol vibe to me, and Interpol, our band, will be discussing a little later. Then there's Brainy, which features more quotable lines like, you might need me more than you think you will, and everything you say has water under it. Then there's Green Gloves, an understated gem like so many of the songs here the previously quoted slow show on which the romanticism is turned up to 11, the surging rocker apartment song, and the nicely building guest room, but really Boxer rises from peak to peak throughout. Here's a clip from Mistaken for Strangers.
we have two great albums that share similar virtues. Both are mostly mellow and melancholic. Both are cohesive and mature. And both are maybe at times a little lacking in excitement and variety. Ghost is a little long at almost an hour and, and some very long songs as well. Whereas Boxer is just about right 40, 43 minutes. Ultimately, although I feel that they're of a similar quality, Ghost of the Great Highway hits me harder emotionally and I like its best songs better. I mean, Carry Me Ohio into Salvador Sanchez, it doesn't get much better than that. And I talked about how impressive Berninger's lyrics are, but Kozilek is no slouch in that department either. How about this one from Carry Me Ohio? Can't count to all the lovers I've burned through. So why do I still burn for you? Couple that with the music, which is so sad and resigned sounding. As good as Boxer is, Ghost just hits me harder in the gut. So I'm picking the Sun Kill Moon album here. On to you guys. I'm curious what you have to say about this matchup. I was saying to Scott right as we started up before we started recording, there's something about Ghosts that feels more fall winter to me and and so maybe my my choice is going to be a little affected by the fact that it's july although it is kind of falling and wintry today considering it's gray and pouring out all day long today but uh there it's it's a very evocative album in in that it it has a specific vibe more of a, a depressing vibe you know their their fetish for deceased boxers notwithstanding it's got a very like road trippy fallish leaves falling introspective vibe that for whatever reason as much as i do like the album and respect the album it doesn't hit me quite the same way i think that it hits you whereas boxer to me there's a couple things going on one i think i i not i think i like the songs better on it i feel like although typically i might gravitate more towards holistic albums albums that that have more of that feel Boxer has songs that I would listen to on a playlist a little bit more than, than certainly Ghosts does. And also for me, Boxer in particular hit at a time when I was out of music for a couple of years, just wasn't listening to it as much. Uh, you know, it was a little less accessible back then. And, you know, in that 2005, six, seven era when, when this came out, that was when I started to get into it. So this is sort of like a formative album, me getting back into indie music. And, and it's one that I still go back to and listen to a lot. And I do think that, at least for me, Alligator I like, but I, I feel as if this was the start of National with a great run of, of albums, you know, in the 2000s and early 2010s. And so for me, this was a, a little bit easier and I'm going to go with Boxer. All right, I guess it's on me. It's on you. Again. again. Um, no pressure. <laughs> so for for the national, I had I had been a like I had been a fan of Alligator before Boxer had come out. So I was sort of anticipating um, Boxer and it certainly sort of um, I don't know, met or exceeded expectations, but it was certainly um, you know, a, a great album. And again, because I, I go back and forth between Alligator, Boxer, and High Violin in terms of what my favorite national album is. And National have a knack of sort of starting their albums with sort of a great opening opening track. Um, and certainly, uh, Fake Empire is, is fits fits the bill here. Um, and Fake Empire, 
What has it got? Horns. Fucking, it's got the fucking horns. Um, not the goat horn. Not not those kind of not the the goat horns, but the horns. Um, and it right it, it adds to the like it adds to the epicness of sort of you know how that that song ends. Um, predictability of that as well, I would think. Right and. And national, right there, a drum bass, right? There's the drummer's great. There's there's a sort of a driving force um, with the bass and, and drummer, you know, behind the music that makes it, you know, while it may be a little bit, um, you know, even monotonish in a sense where it doesn't sort of, you know, leap to great highs, it does have that driving, you know, kick behind it, which makes it sort of more rocking than. Imply, you know, that you wouldn't think by just listening to it, you know, musically or lyric, lyrically. Um, and I do feel like they should go for Like, again, I do think they're one of those bands that could go for it a little bit more in terms of, you know, really, you know, getting to that, to that high, aspiring for that high, whereas they aspire to sort of, you know, keep you on the edge, you know, wanting more. Um, and you know there's a trade-off for that and that it you know it's not um you know it doesn't make the music sort of hokey and sort of you know trying to do more than it than it could <laughs> but um I, I i'm sure bo is agreeing with me right now yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> that's my dog barking in the background <laughs> so I, I do think that there you know there's a give and take between that sort of dynamic with the national where they you know they get you they get you hyped up but you know not necessarily to the pro jam where they're you know every song ends with you know you know screaming and um and going for it um sun kill moon is a different is a little different kind of listen. I mean, it's similar in that, you know, they don't go for it either, right? It's very much a, you know, an um, uh, even keel, like low, low, slow burn for the whole album. Um, to me, the album starts off like the first three songs on, um, on Ghosts are three of my favorite songs. Like they each have sort of a uniqueness to them. Um, I sort of I gravitate to and could listen to over and over again. Um, Salvador Sanchez being this sort of you know really guitar driven epic. Um, you know it's got guitar solos that are sort of cool. It's got the riff to you know to introduce like really a classic riff to introduce a song. Um, the content is great. Um, again, same for. Tipton in, in Ohio, where again, different lyrical content, um, but just a great overall listen. And the album sort of meanders along, I think intentionally, right? It's, it's, it's intentionally, a, you know, a slow burn. Um, you know, some of the songs are long. They don't take you anywhere necessarily, but they sort of are, you know, um, repeat, re repeating themselves and creating this mood. And to me, that mood is not the mood that I always want to be, <laughs> want to be in. <laughs> um, so I'm going it's more to, need to be in the mood album, huh? It's definitely, well, it definitely is. It need to be, again, I think to listen to the whole album, 
right? You need to, again, I differentiate between sort of the beginning of the album where I think they're song driven and the rest of the album, which is sort of, you know, a continuation, but not necessarily the same, you know, strength of, you know, you would put that on a, this on a playlist because it's just a different sort of, um, you know, it, it's not going to, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a little out of place in that type of setting, uh, you know, whereas in the album, it, it makes sense. Um, so I, I, I just think, you know, for, to me, the national just is just something that I would go to more. I think it's more universal. I think it's more song driven. I think it, um, it can compete at, at the peaks, um, and I just think it's a more consistent overall, you know, album start to finish. Whereas Sun Moon, like you said, it's a long, it's a long album, um, and at times it feels like a long album. Um, so, sorry, Scott. Oh, go. huh? Is that what you're trying to say? I'm trying to say <laughs> that uh, this one is not going to go your way either. But again, I know that they're like, look, we're we're nipping at the edges here, and you know, somebody's got to lose. So take the L. Take the L. Uh, I do think these are both grower albums, you know, that they kind of have to grow on you. They, I think they're not albums that, you know, knock you out first listen. At least that was the case for me. I think that I have more of a history with Sun Kill Moon, whereas Keith has more of a history with The National, and that, that also kind of colors how you feel about albums, that history you have with them and, and what they mean to you. I also think uh, Larry is holding it against the uh, Sun Kill Moon because of the silly feud they have with the war on drugs. A band he really likes. <laughs> I did. I did go back. I mean, I was, you know, I Red House Painters, and um, you know, I was into some this album when it, you know, back to almost twenty years ago. So yeah. it's not like it's not it's not a new it's not a newer. It just you know it hasn't they haven't obviously had the same yeah i just you know, know you're a big national success. fan yeah, yeah. yeah they haven't had the same and they haven't had the same success you know in terms of putting out as many good albums as the national to be honest true, true. i think the national are also unique in that they are mostly a mellow band but yet their standout musician is the drummer he's phenomenal uh as well as the singer obviously uh is very distinctive uh a little Maybe, like I said, a little monotonous his vocals. Maybe and I think the delivery, yeah, yeah his delivery is a, yeah, he's got the deeper dynamic. I think like it's a little languid, you know. But yeah, both of them really. Akosha yeah. as well, you know, you, you could say that so they they both have good voices, but uh, maybe uh, over the long haul it, it does get a little monotonous. Uh, but not to be too critical, these these are both great albums in my opinion. I, I'm not surprised you guys went with Boxer. I, I actually kind of expected it. Uh, so I'm taking my lumps, but uh, again, I approve of the albums that, that beat my albums, and uh, I'm a big fan of them as well. So uh, just take the L and move on to matchup number three. Uh, and I think I like my chances better in this one, but we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. We have the number 11 overall seed and number three seed in this bracket, Wilco, with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot from 2002, versus the number 22 overall seed and the number six seed in this bracket, Panda Bear, with Person Pitch from 2007. <laughs> 
Jesus, etc., from Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which is going up against. Let's uh, let's let's face it. If if that was on Hotel California, it wouldn't feel out of place. Yeah, it's a classic rock song, and instead of horns, we got a violin. So again, we got kind of a non-standard rock instrumentation, making the song more interesting. So uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is going to go up against Pan the Bear with Person Pitch. And here's the lead-off track, Comfy in Nautica. First of all, Matt and I spoke at length about Wilco in our original band tournament in episodes four and six. So I'm going to mostly focus just on this album. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is their most acclaimed album, even if I think they have other albums that are as good or at least they're in the same ballpark. And this album is underseated by Rate Your Music. Again, if we use best ever albums or another more populist-based list, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot would have been a top five seed or at least close to it. 
This album is as famous for the music business politics as the, the band had to endure in order to get it released as it is for the music. Recording sessions for this album were difficult. Drummer Ken Coomer, whose instinctive first take philosophy was often at odds with leader Jeff Tweedy and guitarist multi-instrumentalist Jay Bennett's exacting studio methods and increasingly impressionistic songwriting was fired during the sessions, while Bennett was kicked out of the band after the album's completion. Multi-instrumentalist Leroy Bach and still a new drummer, Glenn Koch, rounded out the lineup. And when Wilco were finally happy with the results of their labors, they handed the finished album into their record company, Reprise, who promptly rejected it due to its alleged lack of hit single potential. Rather than redo an album that they were very satisfied with, the band got out of their recording contract, streamed the album on the internet, and became part of an intense bidding war due to the story the album had become and the rave reviews posted on internet message boards. In an ironic turn of events, Wilco ended up on none such records, who happened to be owned by the same parent company, Warner Brothers, as Reprise. Well, Reprise ended up with egg on their faces as Yankee Hotel Foxtrot received rave reviews across the board and it remains Wilco's bestseller. Still, I can see why they were apprehensive, for this album is easily Wilco's most abstract and experimental to date in part probably due to the presence of post-rock producer Jim O'Rourke, who helps open up the band's sound by incorporating lots of cool bits in the background, adding shade and color to these 11 sturdy songs. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is an album of, of contrast. For example, one song is called I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, while another song is called I'm the Man Who Loves You. Elsewhere, upbeat pop songs nestle side by side with fantastic downbeat tunes. Ultimately, this is a hopeful album, to quote Tweedy, and Reservations ends the album on an especially romantic note, i.e. I have reservations about so many things, but not about you, which put to rest the lovesick doubts captured throughout the excellent prior Wilco album, Summer Teeth. There are plenty of other memorable lines throughout the record, such as you have to learn how to die if you want to be alive, which is really about failing before succeeding. Yet Wilco's biggest strength has always been their music, and this album's richly textured music is always exceedingly accomplished and consistently surprising. For example, I'm the Man Who Loves You adds raw Neil Young-like guitar and Chicago-like horns, there you go, Keith, to what could have been a simple pop melody. Then again, Tweedy isn't interested in writing simple pop songs, preferring instead to deconstruct and reconfigure his simple melodies with Baroque arrangements or strange yet compelling sonic embellishments. A case could be made that the band at times goes overboard with the bells and whistles as they occasionally distract fun or compromise some fine melodies. Still, Wilco's sonic tinkerings are extremely successful far more often than not, sometimes spectacularly so, such as I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, which we're going to play now.
to break your heart I am trying to break your heart You still are the lion If I said it wasn't easy I am trying to break your heart This album isn't without flaws, so I'm going to talk about those briefly. Uh, for example, a recurring vocal problem is that some of the slower songs seem plain at first and lag a little in the energy department. And perhaps certain sections will seem a bit overly labored over and cerebral to those pro Wilco's roots here. Let's roll with its style. Best exemplified by their earthy earlier album, Being There. However, I for one greatly enjoy every song here. And this is one of those albums that adds up to much more than the sum of its impressive individual parts. Ultimately, despite the minor flaws I've mentioned, Yankee Hotel Foxshot is simply a terrific album from what is arguably America's best modern day band. On to Wilco's competition in this matchup. One of the more heralded indie bands of the 2000s was Animal Collective, who were beloved by the online music publication Pitchfork and music hipsters in general though they never really cracked the mainstream in terms of radio airplay. Still, in terms of the music press and critical accolades, Animal Collective cast a large shadow over that decade. In particular, their 2009 album, Meriwether Post Pavilion, which topped most critic lists for that year. Another key collective album was Person Pitch, a solo release by member Noah Lennox, a.k.a. Panda Bear, which also made many a best of critics lists both for 2007 and the overall decade in general. In addition to their prolific band output, Animal Collective are a true collective who have released many solo albums as well, a la the new pornographers. Basically, Person Pitch sounds a lot like the Beach Boys. I'm thinking the beauty of Pet Sounds via the layered vocals crossed with the weirdness of Smiley Smile. They also bring to mind more modern bands like Tame Impala and Fleet Foxes, this album has a soft overall sound and a sunny, summery vibe with dreamy, trippy songs that are simple on the surface, but which use repetition and buildups to achieve a seductive power. Most notably on the two 12-minute centipede songs, Bros and Good Girl Carrots. Here's Bros. <laughs>
Simply put, this album makes me feel good. But where this album differs from the Beach Boys is that it's a vibe record that's more about its overall sound than individual songs, as the songs here aren't nearly as memorable as on Pet Sounds. Plus, Panabelle often uses samples and loops, whereas the Beach Boys and their assorted studio musicians played proper instruments, albeit often non-rock ones. Some have suggested that the joyful psychedelia presented here is best appreciated under the influence. But as someone who doesn't do drugs, I can assure you that this album sounds just fine without them. On the album opener, Comfy Nautica, Lennox, Lennox sings, try to remember, always to have a good time. And far more often than not, Person Pitch delivers just that. I'm sure Larry will have more to say about this album. I know he loves it, and it was one of his personal picks. For me, Wilco is the easy winner here, but I'm definitely a fan of the Panda Bear album as well. On to you guys. So yeah, I was um, I was the one who put this, I think, as one of our wildcard picks um, for a couple of reasons. One, Scott, I think the Beach Boys analogy is spot on. I mean, if you listen to the beginning of Company and Nautica, it very much sounds like the harmonies in Pet Sounds. And I remember when this album came out, I somehow, I don't remember how I gave it to a friend, but I, I had a friend listen to it and that was his first impression. And he, he's a, he was a, is and was a, a big music fan. And he said, this sounds like a, a modern day take on Pet Sounds. And there's a lot of similarities to it. The harmonies, the, maybe not the samples, because as you said, the Beach Boys did it through instrumentation, but just the, the continuously changing dynamic of the album. This is one where you'd mentioned it doesn't have a lot of memorable songs. And I think that's because it's not really meant to be listened to as individual songs. All of the songs flow into one another. It's meant to be listened to as an album, even if you come into it in the middle of, an, of the album. But it is meant to be listened to as something continuous. The Tame Impala influence is clearly there. I'm, I'm sure Kevin Parker listened to this album or at least heard it as he was, he was working through it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I know there's a lot of like, um, critical acclaim for Animal Collective in this album. And there's also a lot of critical backlash against Animal Collective and, and potentially this album for this, for the very same reason. And that it feels like it's very much a pitch for creation. And that, you know, if you ask anyone who actually listens to music, they probably don't know about it or haven't heard it. But for me, it is a, a great album. It's a great mood album. It is a very sunny, poppy album. It's a little little synth pop, a little psychedelic, a little avant-garde. It's definitely worth a listen. Maybe surprisingly to Scott and Keith, though, I'm also agreeing and picking Yankee Hotel because for me, that album and that, when it first came out that particular time, I mean, A, I think Wilco is just a better overall band, even though we're picking albums and not overall catalog. But that album came out at a time when I was going through some challenging times. And for whatever reason, it resonated really strongly with me. I happened to be having to go on a lot of long road trips, both work-related and personal-related. And this was an album that I had on all the time. I mean, I had this on CD and would put it in and listen to it straight through and then straight through again and then straight through again. And I have fond memories of all the songs on it. I, I kind of agree that there are a couple of times when you wish there was a little bit more editing and tightening on, on it. But by the same token, I also feel 
this would be a great album where if you stripped out some of the production and listened to it just acoustic, it would also be a phenomenal album. Uh, and and I might be I might be over indexing a little bit on Wilco as a band and Wilco's overall output, but this is probably their best known album and it's probably their most acclaimed album. So for, for me, this was an easy one, not to mention the fact that if my friends, John and JB heard me pick person pitch over Yankee, they, they'd probably kill me. So I, I'm, I'm going to go with it, but I would go with it. Even if that wasn't, if there wasn't a threat of looming violence over my head, I would still go with it. You once sent us a text with a, a picture of the Wilco building from I Yankee did when I was in Chicago. Yeah. Of, of Marina city. Yes, that's right. And, and, and ironically, years ago, I was once in Chicago for work, since posted on Instagram and posted Wilco lyrics. And two of my friends, including my friend JB, immediately posted and posted the rest of the lyrics after that. So it, it resonates. Yeah, and that is, I think, a great album cover. Probably my favorite Wilco album cover, although I like Sky Blue Sky a lot as well. And, I, you know, regarding the backlash with Animal Collective, uh, I think they're they're just a weird band. They they were never meant to have the level of popularity that they achieve through Pitchfork, and uh, I think a lot of people, you know, because of that, they got a bigger audience of people who maybe not is into such adventurous type music, and they're like, "What the hell is this?" You know, and and I think uh, so they they were maybe overhyped in that respect. Uh, so although you're right, they do have a, a lot of people who really like them. They they have a, a lot of haters as well. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You can't, you can't complain. You can't complain about that good and bad, right? Because you know we're talking about them in large part because they were elevated yeah. <laughs> um, from from that scene. So you're gonna get good. You're gonna get the good and bad. And the good, I'm sure they t- they'll take that split well, between good and bad, right? Absolutely. So I was I I was expecting to be the deciding vote again, and I was I was plotting to fake Scott out by picking Panda Bear and then flipping my answer at the last minute to to Wilco. That could have been that could have been the end of the podcast. I think that yeah, I knew this was Wilco all the way. I'm I'm just surprised it's unanimous. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, So and. Look, well, for one, I'll read. Um, so I know Larry's a big fan of Grimes, right? I am. So, although, and, although a little less so since she decided to marry Elon Musk, but whatever. Yeah, right, exactly. That feels so like a bad like choice. This, it's, right, it's bad choices. But um, so what Grimes said about Person Pitch was five albums that changed my life. This was one of the five albums that changed her life. She said, suddenly all music clicked into place and seemed so simple and easy. I was pretty much able to spontaneously write songs immediately after listening to this album once. Wow. Pretty high. That's pretty high praise, right? Like, yeah. And you can see, and you can kind of appreciate where she's coming from, where, you know, it's a different soundscape than most other types of albums, even different than it. You know, I, there's sim- obviously there's similarities between Animal Collective and, and Person Pitch, where where you listen to one and you're not going to be surprised that the same artist, you know, who's putting together the other one. But it is, you know, it is a different type of album, right? And it is interesting because of that, right? And, you know, again, I, I started this 
this um, bracket by calling this the 70s bracket. And certainly, you know, this fits it, you know, person, both albums 100% could fit in with, you know, both a 60s or 70s type of feel because, you know, their, their, um, their influences are clearly from there, from that era. And they wear it, you know, pr- pretty, I think, pretty proudly on, on their sleeve. Um, Wilco, you know, I've, again, I, I keep Foxtrot and like Scott says, you know, I, because Scott goes back to the, you know, the nineties with Wilco, I go back, um, back to that, you know, back th- that far as, as well. And Yankee Foxtrot is a great, look, it's a great classic rock album. I do feel like, you know, again, with the national, with, so there's sort of a, you know, there is a, a little bit of a lack of overall, ex, you know, excitement to the to the album, but I do think it's a great, I do think it's a great album. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm all in on Yankee. We'll see how it does in the next round, but I do think um, Person Pitch is a great pick by Larry. It definitely is. You know, I know you were on the fence between Opeth and, um, and Panda Bear, but, you know, but Panda Bear represents pretty pretty well, and I, I just you know I, I think Panda Bear would have done better with focusing more. I, I honestly feel like Person Pitch would have been better focusing more on songs, you know, like keeping soundscapes. There, there yeah, a lot of, I would call them like repetitive mantras in in some regards right. As well. it's, again, sure. similar. To, Similar to some like the, the points I took off for Sun Kill Moon, I'm taking off for, for, for person pitch and that you know if they if they created more, you know, three to five minute songs that you know kept me compelled, I'd I'd go to it more than just listening to it as a, like you said, as a soundscape that um that you know I forget you know, honestly. I forget it, you know, I forget it's on sometimes. And it, like, I remember, the, you know, I, it's one of those albums where you remember the beginning a lot more than the end. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> there's a reason for that. Um, you'll remember certain songs because they're 12 minutes long, not really because they're necessarily more memorable. Well, yeah. I would even say there's, there's almost no point in, at least the way the album is designed, there's, there's almost no point in even having song, like names of songs. It's just an album. They flow into one another seamlessly. Yeah. They, they repeat themes from each other. You know, like I remember reading at one point he listed, Noah Lennox listed the number of influences that he had. And it, it's something like a hundred different artists, which, you know, I, I'm not sure I can pick up a hundred different artists, but you can certainly see that he is a kind of like a, some music omnivore and was sort of channeling that into how he wanted to build this album. Interestingly, you know, with all the, the backlash against Animal Collective, I go back to this album far more than I do any Animal Collective album. I mean, I, I think Meriwether is probably their best album. The rest of them, eh, they're, they're like, they're, they were interesting and I'd listen to them and, you know, they're not, they're not terrible. But to me, this is, this is the best of the Animal Collective, no Lennox, like, genre. And I think it's because he is hearkening back to an earlier era where some of the other ones are, are yes, they're very experimental. They're a little different. They're just, they just don't have the same cohesion, the same feel for me. But yeah, very, the 
they're abstract. They're, I would I would say so. Uh, yeah, um, and I agree, Wilco. As much as I love them, if they do have a weakness, which we we both pointed out, Keith, you and I, and, and maybe Larry as well, is there's you know at times a lack of excitement, right? And and that's why they've been kind of tagged with the you know the dad rock moniker at times. Uh, but still, it's it's warranted. It's, it's warranted, but it's you know it's that doesn't mean it's not a good, great. It's a great freaking album, right? It's a great album, and and for those interested in seeing you know behind the scenes footage that shows the difficulties Wilco had in making and releasing the album, uh, you should check out uh, the documentary "I Am Trying to Break Your Heart," uh, which has some really good live in the studio performances as well. So definitely worth checking out for uh, a little bit more background info on that album. Uh, so that's uh, made a little bit of a comeback. So I'm one, one and two now, and yep. I'm hoping to even score. So here we go. Matchup number four. We have the number seven overall seed and number two seed in this bracket, Interpol, who we mentioned earlier, with Turn On The Bright Lights from 2002 versus the number 27 overall seed, and the number seven seed in this bracket, the Decemberist with the Crane White from 2006. number one from Turn On The Bright Lights. And again, it's going up against the Crane Wife by the Decemberists. Here's the island.
along with Interpol, this Brooklyn-based band was endlessly compared to Joy Division when this album came out. But those singer Paul Banks does seem to uncannily channel Ian Curtis's ghostly intensity at times. I detect plenty of other influences as well. Oddly enough, given the band's New York roots, most of those influences are British, and many of them are unmistakable. For example, the gorgeously dreamy Untitled, which we played at the start of this episode, begins this album by recalling Disintegration Era Cure, and it's of a similar quality to Plainsong, which likewise started that album out perfectly. Ringing guitars laced with echo a la Coldplay appear throughout, and the Smiths and Bowie pop in and out as well. Elsewhere, Obstacle 1, PDA, and Roland surge forward on great grooves that show off the band's sturdy, hard-hitting rhythm section, which adeptly complements their tense television-esque guitar interplay. So I did name one New York City band there with television. The band's hometown also provides an inspiration for NYC, an evocative album highlight that's probably my favorite song here, along with Untitled and the awesomely hard-rocking Obstacle 1, which we just played in this matchup intro. I also love how Untitled and NYC both sound exactly how the simple but evocative album cover looks. Here's a clip from NYC, the song from which the album gets its title. songs here appear at the beginning, but even after the terrific first four songs, this is a consistently stellar, a somewhat homogenous first set. Truth is, now that we played spot the influences, it should also be duly noted that the album's derivative nature and lack of variety should only minimally impede your enjoyment of it. At the end of the day, the band's impassioned performances and strong songwriting destroys any desire to dismiss them as mere Joy Division wannabes especially since their songs are generally more lushly arranged and epic than the unforgettable skeletal arrangements customarily favored by that great band. Simply put, this album was an instant indie classic that the band has had a hard time living up to, much like The Strokes, though I enjoy some of their subsequent albums as well, even if none of them approach the high overall quality of Turn On The Bright Lights, a tough act to follow. On to the December... Scott, did you say Stellar or Stella? 
Stella, S-T-E-L-L-A, like from the song Stella, was it drawing? What's it called? <laughs> <laughs> she was a diver, and she was always down. She was always down. <laughs> On to the Decemberists and the Crane Wife. Like the National, the Decemberists are a consistently really good band, and as such, we could have picked one of their other albums as well, like Picaresque from 2005, for example. Keeps shaking his head, and, and Larry's giving me the thumbs down, and, and I agree, this is the right pick, but I'm just trying to make a point that they're, they're a damn good band. So enough of the histrionics, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, you're right. I mean, I think BA, they're depending on your source you know it's pretty close in terms of you know what is their number one but i i i think crane but for me crane yeah yeah they have other albums that are worthy yeah absolutely so let's talk about decemberists in general before we talk about the crane wife in particular the decemberists are an american band from portland oregon who sounds decidedly british in large part due to group leader colin malloy's off-kilter vocals which we call neutral milk hotel chef mangum though on the whole his vocals are much more restrained than mangum's other highly literate bands like the smiths and bell and sebastian also come to mind as clearly malloy knows how to use a thesaurus but the decemberists do have their own charmingly whimsical sound after all you get prominent accordion, Hammond organ, piano, pedal steel guitar, theremin, and such, in addition to your standard folk and rock instrumentation. And sea shanties and waltzes are common within their repertoire. The band started out as a more straightforward Victorian slash Elizabethan flavored folk rock combo, but gradually grew more ambitious, rock-oriented, and progressive. And many, including myself, would argue that they peaked with this style in the crane wife. This album sees the band at a musically accomplished peak, and the album also features wonderful storytelling, especially if you're a historian, as the Decemberists are a band where you should pay attention to the lyric sheet while you're listening along. The Crane Wife features complex yet tuneful and catchy songs containing great story-based, often wartime lyrics. The album is rock-based, but still has a lovely old English folk ballads and tuneful pop rock. And it's consistently stellar from start to finish, with several songs, especially those towards the beginning and end of the album, ranking among the band's all-time best. The three-part title track, based on a morbid Japanese folktale, is simply outstanding. The album starts with The Crane Wife 3, which is a serious contender for best December song, while the later two-parter, The Crane Wife 1 and 2, which confusing enough appears after The Crane Wife 3, is a multi-section 11-minute folk prog feast, that perfectly segues into Sons and Daughters and nicely building catchy sing-along finale. Here's an excerpt from The Crane Wife 1 and 2. My
lead vocals and drums on that one. Uh, the other song that obviously must be mentioned is The Island, which we played in this matchup intro. This 12-minute multi-part epic is lyrically inspired by William Shakespeare's The Tempest and musically makes me think of Peter Gabriel-era Genesis as it's highly theatrical and dramatic and heavy on the keyboards. Other more modest highlights include Yankee Bayonet, the duet with Laura Veers, as in general, there's an increased use of female vocals on the album, the results of which are rarely less than completely charming. Then there's O Valencia, which music has a good groove and lyrically has some West Side Story to the story-based lyrics. The Funky Rocker, the perfect crime number two, and the evocative and aptly titled Summer Song. Helped by their now major label backing, The Crane Wife became the best-selling December's album to date. And though perhaps a couple of mid-album songs are merely good rather than great, nitpicks aside, it remains an endlessly replayable masterpiece that's of its time, but completely transcends it as well. So again, we have two excellent albums here, but if we go by our usual standards of which one casts a larger shadow over the period we're covering, I think the Interpol album is more the acknowledged classic. It would be higher, It would be the higher seed on almost any chart we could check out, DEA or Acclaim Music or whatever. So even though I think The Crane Wife is a great album for what it is, and that the, the Decemberists are the better, more consistent band overall, Interpol gets my vote here in this intriguing matchup. On to you guys. It's interesting, the last line of what you said, Scott, I think is what does it for me as well. All have a better catalog. And I think that for the most part, they they better albums overall. But Turn of the Bright Lights as a singular album against Crane Wife is just a better album. And it has more songs that I'm probably going to go to. Not to mention the fact that, I mean, it literally does sound like a Joy Division album, right? That just popped up in like two <laughs> Yeah, which, we, we've which already is, established how much we love Joy Division. I, I think and we've already established how much we love Joy Division. And I think this is going to be a pretty easy, you know, one for most of us. Now, having said that, Crane Wife is a phenomenal album. Crane Wife is also from that same era when I was getting back into indie rock and I listened to it incessantly. I mean, I loved this album. I'm, you know, it's fun. You were making fun of Keith and I because we were, we were mocking you when we were, you know, on video when, when you were saying that they have just as good albums. For me, this is by far their best album. Like, I don't even think the other ones are close. It's not that I don't think their other albums are good, but this one for me is by far their best. And I think it's musically their best. I think it's it's mo the most interesting. I mean, Kalmini is clearly a, he is clearly a, a music nerd like us. Like, you know, he's he's probably a nerd in, in, I hope he's not listening, but he's probably a nerd in more aspects than just in music because, I mean, who, who makes a concept album about a, an old Japanese folktale, which is kind of grim. And, you know, for, for those of you who are not familiar with the crane wife, basically a Japanese, a Japanese fisherman captures a crane and, and uh, nurses it back to life. And then the next day, a beautiful woman appears on his doorstep. He marries her and they start making tons of money because she makes amazing silk. Well, the reason she's making the amazing silk is because she's actually the crane and she's weaving the silk from her own feathers and it's getting sicker and sicker, but he doesn't notice because he's, he's making a lot of cash and he's doing well. And then eventually he, he walks in on her because she had forbidden him to see how she makes the silk and then she flies away. It's a little grim and a little, you know, a little, little bizarre, but apparently it's enough to make a concept album and, and a great concept album at that. But for me, 
I remember texting you guys really early on in this tournament and saying, so um, what songs are we picking from, uh, from, from Interpol? Any of them? Because they're all amazing. And like, I really think I, I love the songs that you picked Scott, but we could have picked any of them and I would have been fine. And I, I kind of feel like we're going to be hearing more of them going forward in this, uh, in this tournament. Uh, at least, at least one more round for sure. Or at least one more round for sure, because I'm picking Interpol as well. So I'm, I'm back to 500, baby. You're back to 500. <laughs> yeah. We still, we we still, still have not had an over for Scott. <laughs> yeah, Crane, uh, Crane Wife is great. Like Crane Wife is a great album. Again, it was one of those where December's were already a known commodity before it came out. So, you know, by the time it came out in what '06. Like I was already deep into um, stealing music, and you know, <laughs> and so so Crane, so so December's weren't new to me, but Crane Wife was definitely one of the albums from that time that I just got immersed in for sure. And Crane Wife one and two, you know that that ending of Crane Wife one and two, it just it just kills me every, it literally kills me every time. <laughs> like, and, and then Sons and Daughters, which follows it, is a, a perfect. Sons and Daughters, yeah. I love that. I love Sons and Daughters. Right, it's it's like um, it's like in the backseat as a closer for Arcade Fire in it in a sense, right? Where it's like just this, you know, nondescript song that just is just a great song. <laughs> you know, it's a great song. Um, so I love Crane Wife. Um. It's killer from beginning to end. Um, and it's going against the juggernaut. Like, to me, Interpol is like, you know, pavement 10 years earlier where they're starting, you know, they're sort of part of a revolution of, you know, of underground music that's that's happening. Um, and you hear it from the, you know, from the first note where you know that there's something ridiculously exciting that's happening um, that you haven't heard in a long time. And they bring it to fruition in a way that just, you know, just kills song by song. So um, to me, this was unfortunate. Like it was an easy one in that I knew going in, like listen, yeah, I could listen to them and it it closes the gap, but I know going in that Interpol just has a different place um, for me personally. It's not about to me. It's not about you know where they sit in different rankings or whatever, right? It's just like I remember what the impact that Interpol had, like as an album, and it was you know it was impactful. It was different. It was like <laughs> like it's majestic. You know, it's like it's taking the, it is taking a little bit of Ian, but, you know, it's it's building an album from start to finish. That's just a great collection of songs. And, um, you know, to me, that's why Turn on the Bright Lights is just it's there aren't that there aren't that many albums that have the same impact, you know, when it comes out where, you know, like right away, this is something that's going to change you know that's going to change the course of music in a in a in a little way right and that's what this that's what this album clearly did you know it's it's changing a little bit 
the history of fucking music and you know i'm going with uh i'm agreeing with you guys <laughs> this is uh it's yeah, spe- it is a special I album we would be unanimous on. yeah for sure but i i thought for sure this one would be the one that we would all be unanimous on as much as i know we all like the december sounds love the december sounds uh and and love the band this was the one where for me it was the easiest and i figured it's the easiest for the two of you as well uh, well, the Wilco was easiest for me, but this was uh, probably the second easiest. Well, the first two I picked the wrong one, so I can't say either one is much good setting about up, either one of them. Setting <laughs> setting up an an epic next round between Wilco and Enterprise. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're all in agreement on this one. Though, let's wrap up the this episode. Uh, you know, this is the conclusion of the first round of this tournament. Uh, we had David Bowie's Black Star beat Titus Andronicus, the monitor. Although, uh, again, that was a little hard because we all love the monitor, but but Bowie was just was, was too overwhelming. Uh, he couldn't be denied. Then you had the National Boxer beat Sunkill Moons, Ghost of the Great Highway. I was the lone dissenter there, but again, I, I was not surprised, and and that's perfectly cool because the box, Boxer is a great album. Uh, so you'll we'll have Black Star versus Boxer. Uh, in one of our upcoming rounds in round two. And then we're going to have uh, Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot beat Panda Bear's Person Pitch unanimously, though we all had good things to say about Larry's uh, personal pick here with Panda Bear. And then we had Interpol's Turn on the Bright Lights beating the Decemberist the Crane Wife, even though, again, we all love both albums. And like he said, that sets up an epic matchup of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot versus Turn on the Bright Lights. So, uh, Next episode, we'll move on to round two, where we'll have four matchups uh, consisting of winners from round one. Once again, I had fun talking tunes with you guys in this episode. Have a good night, everyone. Good night, guys.